0: Hello, listeners, and thank you for tuning in to the ATS Assembly on Clinical Problems First podcast, where we'll be discussing ways to overcome obstacles to the diagnosis of hypersensitivity pneumonitis. I'm Lucian Martz, and I'm a pulmonary and critical care fellow at Emory University, and I'm joined today by Drs. Brett Elliker and Brett Lay. Dr. Elliker is a professor of clinical radiology and is the chief of the cardiac and pulmonary imaging section at the University of California, San Francisco. He has research interests in using high-resolution CT to evaluate diffuse lung disease, imaging in patients with lung transplants, and thoracic vascular imaging, and has published over 30 peer-reviewed articles. Dr. Lay is an assistant professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine, also at the University of California, San Francisco. He has research interests in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, and fibrotic lung disease, and has published over 20 peer-reviewed articles. So first of all, Dr. Zelliker and Lay, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. I was hoping you uh, could start by sharing your clinical and radiographic approach to defining and categorizing the various stages of, of hypersensitivity pneumonitis.
1: Do you want to talk about that one, Brett Lay?
0: Sure.
2: I think it's a great question. I just want to start by saying that I think hypersensitivity pneumonitis as an ILD is is one of the more difficult diseases we see, largely because of the heterogeneity of the disease. And there are a lot of sources of heterogeneity, which we'll get to in, in discussing sort of how how we categorize the various stages of HP. But there are a lot of sources of heterogeneity, including temporal, its onset, the wide range of exposures that can cause the d- disease or have been linked to the disease, as well as heterogeneity and morphologic features, both on CT and pathology, and then finally, with how the disease behaves over time and how it responds to, to treatments, in particular immunosuppression. So I think this is one of the more challenging diseases we see in ILD. It's also challenging because we lack uh, straightforward diagnostic criteria like we have for IPF. We lack other physical exam findings or serologies like we do in the autoimmune ILDs to help us with diagnosis, and then, you know, finally, we, we really lack high-quality evidence for effective treatments in the disease like we have in IPF and some of the connective tissue diseases. So, I just wanted to start by saying that. And in attempts to capture some of the heterogeneity of the disease, hypersensitivity pneumonitis has typically been categorized in one of three groups, largely based on temporal behavior but also capturing some of its morphologic features. And those three categories are described as acute, subacute, and chronic. But I think for folks who see a lot of hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, I think we can clearly define, pretty clearly define two groups, those being the acute and chronic groups. We think of acute HP really as a pretty uh, specific syndrome where patients present hours to days after a heavy, typically obvious exposure. And they present with radiographically with diffuse ground glass and or ground glass nodules with or without air trapping. And this is a group that we actually, we don't often see in interstitial lung disease clinics because it presents acutely, again, usually to the hospital, and it's probably often misdiagnosed as other diseases like a pneumonia. And only when it's more recurrent or in some cases progresses to a more chronic form, do, is it really recognized and treated by ILD clinicians? The other, I think, clearly definable group of HP are those patients who have developed any signs of fibrosis on their CT scan. And at least in my mind, I attribute the chronic category to those patients who have some fibrosis on their CT scan with or without other features that we think are more typical of HP, like ground glass and air trapping, for instance. And this is a group of patients that typically presents with months to years of symptoms and may be less uh, responsive to immunosuppressive therapy and more more progressive despite her usual treatments. So outside of those two groups that I think are more easily recognized, clearly definable among HP patients, then there's this category that has been described as subacute. And generally, when we're talking about patients with subacute HP, again, we're talking about a wide range of duration of symptoms, but really radiographically, we're seeing more signs of, of inflammation as well as chronicity. So, we're seeing ground glass air trapping along with normal lung. And Dr. Elliker can describe that more, something that we call the head cheese pattern, but really lacking fibrosis to make the distinction between more subacute and chronic. So that's sort of in a general sense how I think of the subcategories
0: of HP. Perfect. Thank you. Dr. Elliker, anything to add to that from a radiographic standpoint?
1: Yeah, as Dr. Lay mentioned, there is a real wide variety in the different manifestations of HP, and that's what makes it really a challenging diagnosis. And those manifestations overlap with so many other interstitial lung diseases and diffuse lung diseases. So it's it's rare that HP is not even not at least not considered in the diagnosis. It's considered a, a, in in many different ways. So you know, think from the imaging perspective, it can present with ground glass by itself where you think the differential would include a viral infection or edema. It can present with ground glass central upper nodules, where you're mainly thinking about respiratory bronchiolitis as a differential diagnosis. It can present with mosaic perfusion and air trapping, where you would be also thinking about constrictor bronchiolitis or asthma. And it can present with fibrosis. And commonly, we think about hypersensitivity pneumonitis and uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis as two things that can overlap in their imaging manifestations. And all of those manifestations can overlap with each other. And so there's a, you know, it's a very challenging diagnosis because of the myriad of different appearances on imaging, the different appearances on pathology, right? HP can present with... Typical findings of HP, or it can look like nonspecific interstitial pneumonia. Sometimes it can look exactly like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So there's a lot of different appearances on pathology as well, which may complicate the diagnosis, and from a clinical perspective as well, as, as Dr. Lay was mentioning, from really acute, fulminant, rapidly worsening symptoms to more very slowly progressive symptoms over many, many years. And as I said no matter what diagnosis you're considering, HP often is one of the things you're thinking about from within that spectrum.
0: So it sounds like the two major categories, acute and chronic, clearly distinguishable from one another, but distinguishing them from other disease entities can be difficult. And I guess along those lines, Dr. Elliker, you recently published a review in the Journal of Thoracic Imaging... On the utility of the multidisciplinary approach to the diagnosis of HP, and I was wondering if you could share some of the highlights from that review, and, and in particular maybe comment on the roles uh, of the pathologist, radiologist, and, and pulmonologist in, in making the diagnosis.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, <clears throat> we present all our cases who are seen in diffuse in our interstitial lung disease clinic in our multidisciplinary conference, and we're very strong believers that this maximizes accuracy in diagnosis. In fact, we, uh, I think we started doing this probably about six, eight years ago, and before then, the pulmonary group would talk to radio- go down to radiology and talk to them separately and then go to pathology, and it was all a separate process. And then um, Hal Collard, who leads our group here, decided at some point that it would be probably better for patient care if we all got in the same room, despite the limitations of getting so many people in the same room at the same time, uh, uh, for an hour or two a week, and actually present all these patients, and it's really an amazing experience for everyone. I mean, one, I think it really maximizes the accuracy of diagnosis when you actually can have this discussion back and forth, uh, and the discussion not infrequently gets very heated and everyone feels strongly about one way or the other, but it's, it's a discussion back and forth, and it's always one that's done with a lot of respect for each other's disciplines, and I think that, that active discussion is really important. And so, you know, we present all the cases there, and we, we all gain a lot of insight also from from hearing each other talk. I've learned a ton of pathology from our really great pulmonary pathologist, Kirk Jones, in that conference. And that gives me a lot of insight into why the imaging looks the way it does. So we, def- we present all the cases there, and, um, you know, I think the role of the different arms of that multidisciplinary approach are probably as follows with respect to HP. So you start with the clinical presentation, and all our patients get a CT scan. And in some cases, that combination of clinical information plus the CT can make a pretty confident or quite a confident diagnosis in hypersensitive neonitis. So for instance, exposure plus typical CT scan findings, which would include mainly a combination of air trapping, mosaic perfusion, and ground glass or ground glass central over nodules or fibrosis plus mosaic perfusion and air trapping. I think that those combinations of air trapping with something else, uh, in the presence of an exposure, usually we feel pretty comfortable making that diagnosis without pathology. And, of course, one of the other main complications or challenges of of hypersensitivity, other than the myriad of different presentations, uh, is the fact that many patients don't have a clear exposure. Patients who have pathologically proven hypersensitivity In our experience, probably even more than 50%, 50% is generally the number quoted in the literature approximately, but even even more than 50% of patients with chronic HP who have fibrosis don't have a clear identifiable exposure. And that makes it really challenging because from a clinical perspective, how do you distinguish idiopathic diseases like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis from hypersensitivity pneumonitis that does not have a clear exposure? Well, one clue is often the imaging. The imaging findings of IPF and chronic HP, there is some overlap, but there are some imaging findings that strongly suggest one or the other is the definitive diagnosis. Of course, in the absence of an exposure, we do not feel comfortable making that diagnosis without pathology. So pathology is obtained when either there is no exposure and there's no clinical clues to point you to the correct diagnosis, uh, or when the imaging is not classic, so then those, those patients will go on to get pathology. And even it's important to note that even at that point it 's still a multidisciplinary diagnosis. Pathology sees a lot of things that on imaging we don't see. You can see granulomas of HP. they can see uh, organized pneumonia. Sometimes it sees the disease is more bronchial-centric, whereas in the CT it doesn't appear that way. So pathology sees a lot of things, but it's also important to remember that pathology is a sampling of the lung. And that sample isn't always 100% representative of the entire disease. So we have some cases where a patient comes in with chronic symptoms, has fibrosis, no exposure, has a CT that's really suggestive of chronic HP, and then gets pathology, which shows typical findings of usual interstitial pneumonia or IPF. And we tend to give those patients a diagnosis of IPF, but sometimes those patients will go on to lung transplant and when you have the whole lung, it actually is very typical chronic h p so I think the point is there are limitations to c t there are limitations to pathology, and in the end, we still make a diagnosis based on all three arms of that multidisciplinary approach but again, that's so important is being able to to have that discussion in a room back and forth between the different arms to understand the subtleties of what we're doing because This making a diagnosis is challenging in many of these cases where there's no clear exposure. So we need to focus on some of those subtleties of exactly what does the CT show, how convinced is the radiologist, exactly what the pathology shows, how many features of HP are present, and that helps us make a more confident diagnosis. Thank you so much. I think that's so
0: helpful to know every patient should get presented to the multidisciplinary discussion for review because it sounds like everybody has an input. So I wanted to switch gears and focus a little bit more on chronic HP. There's no consensus definition for chronic HP, but several criteria have been proposed by expert groups. And Dr. Lay, you recently published an article ahead of print in the Blue Journal addressing this topic. Would you mind telling us what prompted you to write this paper and maybe discussing the results of the paper as well?
2: Sure, and I just want to give a shout-out to the first author on the paper, Julie Morissette, who is a wonderful ILD pulmonologist in in Montreal who really helped lead this study and put together the experts that contributed. So, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, the HP field, I think, is really uh, limited by the lack of some kind of consensus definition and diagnostic criteria, and it's really interesting we we all everybody who does ILD clearly appreciates the value of of the multidisciplinary process in making these diagnoses we all feel it's essential to make the right diagnosis for our patients but there has been published literature interestingly that shows mdd's around the world expert centers reviewing the exact same cases We'll come to different conclusions, and this was most notable for hypersensitivity pneumonitis, where the agreement among expert MDDs for what was HP and not HP was really poor. That's a study by uh, by Simon Walsh and the folks over in the UK, but involved MDDs around the world. That study really highlights the fact that there's a lot of variability in the diagnostic process of HP we're all weighing different pieces of evidence differently and using different sets of ancillary tests to help make a confident diagnosis. So it's this really, this variation in practice, this lack of consensus diagnostic criteria like we have for IPF, and the fact that there have been some opinion pieces sort of putting out there how uh, individual groups do things. Julie and I really wanted to in a methodologically sound way really figure out where there was consensus around the diagnostic process for chronic HP. So uh, we conducted a modified Delphi study in which we tried to identify all the diagnostic pieces of information that folks use to diagnose chronic HP through a comprehensive literature search, then a focused interviews of of a handful of experts from around the world that then led to the creation of a, a three-round Delphi survey that we gave to 45 ILD experts, many of them with specific expertise in HP from 14 countries, and look for the diagnostic items for which there was consensus. It was defined as 75% or more of, of experts agreeing that the, the criterion was very important or important. There were some interesting findings, many of them can be expected. Of the clinical pieces of information that we look at, experts agreed that patients needed respiratory symptoms um, and really placed a lot of importance on the identification of an exposure that's been linked to causing HP, a temporal relationship to disease onset and the exposure, and in some cases, a clinical improvement when the patient is removed from the exposure Other clinical items, folks agreed that there needed to be a negative workup for autoimmune disease, given the fact that autoimmune diseases can mimic some of the features of HP. Radiographically, uh, experts placed a lot of emphasis on the presence of mosaic perfusion and or air trapping, central lobular nodules, perivascular central distribution of findings, and ground glass opacities. Interestingly, one of the tests that I find there's a lot of variation from center to center is the use of bronchoscopy and specifically the percentage of lymphocytes in BAL fluid as a diagnostic test. A lot of centers use that in conjunction with clinical and radiographic information to make their diagnosis and decide whether or not a surgical lung biopsy is needed. Other groups move straight to surgical lung biopsy when the clinical and radiographic information is not enough to to make a confident diagnosis. There was consensus that a BAL lymphocyte percentage of, of greater than 40 or 50 percent, those two thresholds was was important in the diagnostic process. Lower thresholds were either felt to be unimportant or did not meet consensus. And then pathologically, some of the features, classic features of HP that we think of like poorly formed interstitial granulomas or giant cells, bronchiolocentric inflammation small airway fibrosis, and lack of, of, of features that suggest another diagnosis were, were important. And the multidisciplinary process, reach consensus is important for diagnosing HP. There were some interesting findings for consensus as not important. And some things that we think about or do in clinical practice that folks did not feel was important, clinically one being a basically a steroid test. Uh, so an improvement with steroid therapy was felt to be not important in the diagnostic process of HP. Also, there's epidemiologic evidence that HP is less common in smokers. So some people use that diagnostically, but the, the experts felt that that was not important in the diagnostic process, their smoking history. And as I mentioned, lower thresholds of uh, BIL lymphocytosis and uh, serologic tests of antigen exposure like precipitant tests did not reach consensus as not important in the diagnostic process of HP. So some interesting findings there and really an effort to try to bring some consensus around some of the, the variation in the diagnostic process of HP.
0: And very interesting findings. Now, with the publication of this study, uh, I think the next question is, what are the next steps? Where do we go from here?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. In the third round of the survey, we presented experts with a series of cases that kind of exchanged different pieces of diagnostic information that, that in previous rounds were found to be important and had the experts assign their confidence in the HP diagnosis. And through that, we were able to develop a diagnostic algorithm using these individual consensus criteria that gives uh, a confidence in the diagnosis of HP that was born out of this process but is uh, by no means a diagnostic algorithm that is ready for prime time in that uh, I think That algorithm needs to be validated in a well-designed case control study or ideally prospectively. And several of the criteria, if you read them, are a little vague or could be worked out in more detail, like what it means for an exposure to be a likely exposure, Uh, what we mean by a temporal relationship. And some of the radiographic and pathologic categories, I think we could delve a lot deeper into those individual pieces of information to assign sort of categories of more or less confidence in creating a more uh, more robust algorithm. Those steps, validation of the algorithm we put forward, a little more detail on some of the specific diagnostic criteria within it, hopefully could inform Uh, you know, the development of of international consensus criteria, a consensus document like we have for IPF to really hopefully get us all on a similar page and uh, talking about and studying the, the same disease.
0: Sure. I just wanted to close by asking what your thoughts were on the most pressing questions and the diagnosis of hypersensitivity pneumonitis that really has left to be addressed.
2: Yeah, I think related to the discussion we've had now, I think we need more information, high-quality studies around the role of the clinical tools we have available now. So I'd like to see more studies looking into the diagnostic, prognostic, and predictive treatment effect of things like different imaging patterns, BAL lymphocytosis. I'd like to know better the diagnostic characteristics of some of the serologic tests. I'd like to see more standardized panels, if possible. Like I said, I'd like to see validation of diagnostic algorithms like, you know, our Delphi-derived algorithm, and then ideally the generation of, of some consensus document. And then, of course, we need randomized clinical trials of different treatment options in HP. We need to know if immunosuppression is helpful and in which patients it is helpful for. We need to know if those, especially with progressive fibrosis, if Medications approved for IPF are also beneficial in that subgroup of patients. And that's going to those trials are going to be difficult. again, we we first need to know what we're talking about and what we're studying uh, and agree on that. So we have inclusion criteria for trials. And if we're testing multiple arms of treatment, we need multi-center collaborative efforts to be able to enroll enough patients. And we need creative trial designs, potentially something adaptive where patients can move along from first-line immunosuppression to IPF medications or a combination thereof. But that's going to take a lot of collaboration and creativity to make treatment trials and HP work. And then beyond things that we have now that need better research, I think molecular profiling, molecular medicine is really going to turn the way we classify patients upside down in ILD and help us to subtype patients in a more meaningful way. And so I'm looking forward to the molecular era of ILD, including in HP. And then, you know, I think we need to work out the immunologic pathways involved in HP a little bit better so that possibly available biologics could allow us to treat patients in a smarter way. And then finally, I think antigen detection is, is really difficult now, and we need to develop better tools to identify the causative antigen and, and confirm it with some kind of laboratory testing.
1: Yeah, I would echo a couple of those sentiments. Um, I think two of the more interesting areas from my perspective are... The development of decided-upon criteria, internationally decided-upon criteria for HP. And in some sense, it would be great to have those criteria developed, and then we can test them and see how well they work and see if we can refine them even, even further. And I, I do think, as Dr. Lay mentioned, there are differences in how we all practice. But I think in terms of the radiographic, clinical, pathologic, diagnosis of HP. We're, we're all pretty similar with a few exceptions. As he mentioned, the BAL is probably one big exception, how we differ from some other institutions. But we're, I think we're pretty close. And so I think it would be really important for a group of experts to get together and come up with a consensus. And then we can use that as a Framework and work forward from there and use it to push forward clinical trials and other investigations into uh, some of the more subtleties of the radiology and pathology. And um, as he mentioned, I, I think that this direction that we might be moving towards in terms of treatment between two broad groups of patients with interstitial lung disease, people who have inflammatory disease versus people who have fibrotic disease, uh, is very interesting. And, you know, I don't treat patients, but it's really fascinating to me as a radiologist, you know, a patient with chronic hypersensitivity who has pathology or imaging, some morphologic tests that shows that there's fibrosis with honeycombing and, and you know looks pretty severe, those patients often behave from a clinical perspective like IPF, like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So are we moving towards a new way of thinking about these patients that not all hypersensitivity should be treated the same way, that the more inflammatory sides of things should be more treated with anti-inflammatories and the patients who look more like IPF should be treated with antifibrotics. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done there. But in some sense, if that is the case, diagnosis may not be, you know, as important than defining the morphologic features that are present and treating those underlying morphologic features, whether that's on a radiology or pathology. So we'll see. This is thinking ahead, and um, you'll see if the antifibiotics work with these patients and whatnot. But um, those are two of the areas that I'm most excited about, you know, to see what happens in the next five to ten years.
0: Well, thank you again uh, to my guest doctors, Brett Elliker and Brett Lay, for joining us today. We learned quite a bit of useful information including their approach to identifying patients with HP, the utility of presenting all patients with ILD to the multidisciplinary conference to really get the combined input from the pulmonologist, radiologist, and pathologist. We reviewed what criteria may and may not be helpful in identifying patients with chronic HP. And finally, we closed on some thoughts of what areas in the field have yet to be addressed.